Well, our sermon text is a short one, so you won't be standing long, but if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. I'll give you just enough time to stand up. It's a short text. It's Proverbs 14, verse 12. Give ear to the Word of God. It writes, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Sends the reading of God's word of humanity. Short and sweet. You might remember if you were here last Sunday that Rob actually read that as part of our scripture reading. Uh, he read the first half of Proverbs 14. And even as I sat there listening to him read it, that one jumped off the page. I was highlighted in my Bible and this kind of was rattling around my head all week, and so I thought, you know, usually the first Sunday we go through the Psalms in order. Once in a while we'll pick a proverb, and I thought this might be a good Sunday. Uh, I figured just maybe this, this, this proverb was stuck in my head for a good reason and thought it might be good to uh, spend some time together looking at it more fully in a full-length sermon. Um, it, it's a short text, but it won't be a, it won't be a, a super short sermon uh, said at this point, but I'll try not to make it too long. But... Um, you know, we've noted, we've preached a few sermons in the book of Proverbs in the recent uh, months and years, and it's always good to remember and note that, you know, the book of Proverbs, we think of it as this uh, kind of loosely connected uh, collection of, of worldly, worldly wisdom for, for everyday living, uh, kind of a collection of sanctified worldly wisdom, uh, loosely connected, loosely constructed, but it's really not, it's not just that, it's a lot more than that. Um, it certainly does contain a wealth of practical insight and wisdom for daily life. Uh, but this, the wisdom offered to us uh, and put before us in the book of Proverbs is not just some kind of neutral, non-theological, secular wisdom. You know, if, if there was, if you know an unbeliever and they've never read the Bible before and you were to give them the, book, the Bible and tell them, read the book of Proverbs, there is a lot they could learn for daily life, no question. There's a lot of practical, quote-unquote, things that they would be able to learn but if you understand the book of Proverbs rightly, you'll know that the wisdom and insight that are offered here are anything but neutral and untheological. God is at the very center of the book of Proverbs if we rightly read it and understand it. He is ever-present throughout its pages. We saw in a previous study some months ago, Proverbs 9.10, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. In some ways, you could argue this is the theme of the whole book the central message of the book, and this is what it says. Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight or understanding. So if, if Proverbs is about wisdom, what does this verse have to say about wisdom, real wisdom? Without the fear of God, there's no such thing. There's no real having of true wisdom uh, without knowing the fear of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Holy One, which I think may be an, an adumbration of sorts to Christ himself, without knowing Christ, there's no even the beginning of insight. So without the fear of the Lord, there's not even the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and without, him, without the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, not even having a, you know, a full dose of it, so to speak, even the very beginnings of wisdom is impossible apart from the fear of God. And without the knowledge of Christ, insight is forever out of reach if it's rightly understood. And so Proverbs gives us a great treasure trove of counsel for daily living, and if we are to, if we are willing to listen and, make, and take it to heart, that is the case. But all the wisdom offered to us in this book, in, in Proverbs, uh, begins and ends in some ways with the fear of God 
And that's probably nowhere more true than it is in our text this morning. There's no getting around our text in Proverbs 14 and 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's more than just practical advice for daily living. That is keeping the main thing the main thing and putting eternity before us, before our eyes, which is always a good thing for us to be reminded of and to uh, take notice. Uh, so here in Proverbs 14, 12, we see that the wisdom that God offers to you and I this morning is not just about living a more fulfilling life. It's not just about living your best life now. It's about far more important things than that. Uh, you know, now, a more fulfilling life, if you read this text and understand it and apply it, will certainly be one of the results. You will have a more fulfilling life following Christ and fearing the Lord, uh, but that is not the main thing, the main result um, of it. The message of Proverbs, and especially of our text this morning in chapter 14, is really a matter, as it says plainly, it's a matter of life and death. Eternal life or everlasting death. That's what's placed before us in this great practical book. And so it's good for us as you read a practical book like this so-called every once in a while, there's a verse that jumps off the page to remind you there's more to life than this life that we are to be concerned with. Our text is as serious as it is brief. And again, this is what Solomon says. There is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. seems like a good thing. But its end is the way or the ways uh, to death. Matthew Henry, some of you know who that is, great Bible commentator. He says this, this little paragraph could serve as a sermon in and of itself, but he says of this verse, he says, Matthew Henry writes, We have here an account of the way and end of a great many self-deluded souls. Their way is exceedingly fair. It seems right to themselves. They please themselves with a fancy that they are as they should be, that their opinions and practices are good and such as will bear them out. The way of ignorance and carelessness, the way of worldliness and earthly mindedness, the way of sensuality and flesh-pleasing seem right to those who walk in them. Much more the way of hypocrisy and religion, external performances, partial reformations, and blind zeal. This, they imagine, will bring them to heaven. They flatter themselves in their own eyes that all will be well at last. It's about as good a summary statement of that proverb, I think, as could be said. He ends and sums up his comments on this verse simply by saying this. Self-deceivers will prove in the end self-destroyers. That's a sobering thing to think about, but that's what our text teaches us if we think about it rightly. And if that's the case, and it no doubt that it is, there are a great many self-deceivers both inside and outside of the visible church. This is much the same as what Jesus says himself in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus tells the crowds, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Easy to read that on the page and not give it much thought, but what is he saying there? He says, many enter by the wide gate and travel the easy road. They go with the flow. They follow their hearts. They follow the crowds. But where does that lead them, Jesus says? To destruction. To destruction, verse 13. In contrast to this, the gate 
to life is what? It's narrow, and the way is hard or difficult that leads to life, or, or the end of which is life. And those who find it are what? Few. Now, this is not contradicting the book of Revelation, where chapter 7 talks about that one day in heaven is going to be a great multitude that no man can count. Uh, so he's not saying there will be a few people in heaven and have lots of elbow room. But, but he's not contradicting that. But he is saying that you could say in some ways the majority of people, which road are they on? The easy road and the broad gate. And, and many are those who are on that, and it leads them to their destruction. And few are those who find life on the narrow way. That being the case, it's fitting. You know, this is a communion Sunday. As you can see, we have the elements here before us. You know, on communion Sundays, we who are, believe in Christ are often admonished, and should be often admonished, to do what? What are you supposed to do as you come to the table? The Bible says, examine yourself. And so this, this text certainly does invite us to do just that. We are to examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so, something such as that, uh, we should, it's fitting that we look at a text like this, which certainly exhorts us to do just that. Paul elsewhere says the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So think about that. Paul, we, we have in Scripture two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Some scholars believe there might have been others in between there, but regardless of the ones we have in Scripture, the ones that God wanted us to have uh, for, for, for perpetuity, both letters that Paul wrote to Corinth that we have in our Bibles, in both those books, those letters, Paul tells the church twice there to examine themselves. He's not addressing those who are out there. He says to those in the church, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. If you think about it, that's one of the blessings of the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. In the church, it provides professing Christians like us with ongoing opportunities for self-examination, renewed repentance, and strengthened assurance. That's the the purpose. You know, when, when Paul says examine yourself, he's not encouraging you and I to morbid introspection. He's not encouraging sincere believers to doubt your salvation and to not take the Lord's Supper. Far from it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read that later in the service if we go to the table, tells them to examine themselves and encourages them to take it. But it's it's good that there are many, because there are many, who may not actually know the Lord but profess faith. It's good for this to be something that we do, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And so, I'd like to real briefly, we don't have time to do a lot with it. There's so much more that could be said. I'd like us to briefly look at some of the ways that seem right to people, to a man, that, that end in death. Some of these would be more obvious than others. The first is open ungodliness, unbelief, and atheism. This is the person who uh, will never darken the door of the church if, it, if it's their choice. Such a person sees no need for God or faith in Jesus Christ, no need for repentance, Such a person lives in open sin and rebellion against God, as if there were no day of judgment to come. The word of God in Psalm 14 calls this kind of a person a fool. A fool. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, it's almost like, you almost picture it as if he's among the church. He's embarrassed to say it out loud, but he says it in here. He 
He's too timid to say it out loud sometimes, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You know, a, a woodenly literal translation of that passage, which we don't do in our Bibles, it literally says, the fool says in his heart, no God. God's not there. That's what he says. He says in his heart, and he says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Paul quotes that in Romans 3. And those things go together. They're, they're, those verses, that, that verse, Psalm 14, 1, the thing in the first part of the verse leads to what follows. When it says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God, there's a reason that the next thing you read is, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. It doesn't just say they sin. They say there's no God, and they do abominable deeds. It doesn't take much looking at the news or social media these days to see the truth of that borne out in everyday life. Now, why does the Bible call that person a fool? A fool is somebody who does something against what they know to be true. And so the atheist, the professing atheist, is a fool because they know that God is there. They know he's there. They know that judgment is to come and they will answer to him one day, and yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1.18, and their unbelief shows itself in their corruption and in their doing abominable deeds and in not doing good. The one leads to the other. They know God is there and they suppress the truth in their sin because they love their sin and they hate God. That's In some ways, that's every human being ever that has ever lived outside of Christ. The fool, the fool is us outside of Christ in many ways. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord, or in its chapter, 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. The unbeliever says God is not there, and the more important thing is they think God does not see. And yet Proverbs 15.3 tells us that his eyes are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.9, just a little bit after in that same chapter, it says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. What's an abomination? It's, it's at, at, if nothing else, it's something that highly offends God. And elicits his wrath. Will God not judge when he sees the way of the wicked as an abomination? He certainly will. Now that's, that might be the obvious one. That might be the one that most of us, even people that, that aren't going to church but they have some kind of fear of God in their lives, might say, well, that's not me. That's those other people out there. But there are other ways, many other ways that seem right to a man that lead to death. Charles Bridges writes the following. He says, no one can doubt the end of open ungodliness. But other paths in the broad road, seemingly right, are not less certainly in their end the ways of death. It's not just open atheism and ungodliness that leads to death. False religion and idolatry is another way that often leads, uh, seems right to a man but leads to death. People think that somehow, many people do, as long as they are religious in some vague way, that all is well as if all roads, as many people think, they think all roads lead to heaven. And as long as they worship somehow, some way, regardless of the name of, of, of the God that they worship, that God must be pleased with that, and then that will lead them at long last to heaven one day. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says many un, uh, inconvenient things to us. John 14, 6, Jesus Christ says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. And as if 
just to make sure we didn't misunderstand what he's saying, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Because we'd always say, well, not, not no one. Most people. Jesus says, no, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is telling us there that he is not one way among many. Jesus is not one truth among other equally true truths. He's not just one way to eternal life. Jesus says he is the way. What does that mean? It means he's the only way. That's what he's getting at. He tells us that no one comes to the Father except through him. Or did our Lord Jesus Christ suffer the wrath of God in our place just so that we could follow some other way to God of our own devising? Did Jesus die and suffer the wrath of God? We just recited the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Did he do all that to be a way so that we'd have an option, one among many, to be made right with God? Following some other way of our own devising is really trying to save ourselves by our own works. God forbid. Another, you know, another false way that leads to, to death is salvation by works. Seeking salvation by works, by our own good deeds. Such a person seems to think that if, if their good deeds outweigh their bad on the scale, so to speak, that they will attain to heaven at last. But what does the Bible say about that? It's always a good question to ask. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being or no flesh will be justified in his sight. Whose sight? God's sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If we look at the laws, as Rob read a little while ago, the Ten Commandments, if we look at the Ten Commandments, our first response, even as believers, had better not be that of the rich young ruler. All these I've kept since my youth. Been there, done that. We haven't been there and done that unless we're thinking of breaking them. Then we most certainly have been there and done that. And so Paul says, he rips the rug right out from underneath the legalist here. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. None. Why? Because the first thing the law does, the commandments do, is show us our sin. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 that we are what? Saved by grace through faith in Christ. And then he says in verse 9, not a result of works that no man can boast. Our best good works, not, not just your average good works, the best good works that you'll ever do outside of Christ are nothing but filthy rags in God's sight that cannot cover our sins. There's a reason he uses the word rags there. You think of it's like the fig leaves in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve tried to sew together for themselves. We use good works wrongly when we use them as a covering for sin. It's, it's worse than dirty clothes. You know, we, I, won't, I won't say Luke's name and embarrass him, but sometimes uh, he hypothetically may wear the same shirt for more than one day or two days. And so, well, hey, we should take that one off and clean it. Well, I, you know, Paul, Paul and Isaiah say, uh, that such such things really can cover. They're not just dirty clothes. They're filthy rags. They're the kind of rags you don't even wash. You throw them away. They're such a filthy thing to see. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, it's a strange word, but I'll explain it, uh, are as filthy rags, and we do, and we do all, and we all do, sorry, fate is a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So 
He says, we all, we are all as an unclean thing, and he says in the ESV, uh, we sometimes see it as righteous deeds. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's really a good way to translate it, even if it sounds strange to our ears. Because what's the point? It's, it's your righteous deeds being used, trying to be used, as a covering for sin. That's the reason for that analogy in that, that verse is saying, I'm a sinner, but I'm going to cloak myself in my good deeds, and therefore God is going to accept me. But what does Isaiah say? Not so fast. All your righteousness is the things that you depend upon outside of Christ to be made right with God are filthy rags. They are not a good covering. It's not something you wear to a dinner party, much less before God. Another false way that leads to death is the empty outward observance of Christianity. This is the way of mere formalism or hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this. Some very strong words to say about such a person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Keep in mind, he's writing this to the church. 1 Corinthians is a hard letter to read. Imagine, you know, we, we have, of any church, the best church on this, in this world, which we are not, has a multitude of imperfections and things that need to be uh, repented of and cleaned up and fixed. But listen to what Paul writes to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. What's he implying? Some were, and it wasn't that hard to do. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, there are people, there were people in the Corinthian church, and there are people in the church today, who believe somehow that the unrighteous will still inherit the kingdom of God. When you read 1 Corinthians, you'll, what you'll see is, in general, here's an outline, not an outline, but a kind of a brief introduction, Paul addresses certain sins and things that were going on in the church, sinful practices, and also addresses certain questions that they had for him. Well, so when he brings this up, this isn't some hypothetical. Paul is saying, as he says in the chapter previous to that, 1 Corinthians 5, there was immorality there, and he says of a kind that even the Gentiles don't speak of. In the church, this wasn't some hypothetical thing. So Paul tells them very seriously do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he asks, he asks, do not be deceived. That should get our attention. It certainly must have gotten theirs. He's writing that to the church. And while these things are certainly just as true of those who make no profession of faith in Christ, he could have written this to the unbeliever. You could preach this word out there to those who don't profess faith in Christ. It could still apply. But he's making this statement to those inside the church. Though there are many who profess faith in Christ, sad to say, who never repent of their sins. And if that's the case, those folks are not yet believers in Christ and are not yet reconciled to God. There is no salvation without repentance, although there are many voices in the visible church today that will tell you otherwise. Sign a card, pray a prayer, walk forward at, a, at, a, at some kind of meeting, and then however you live doesn't matter. You're not saved by works, but you're not saved without them. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is followed by verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them, which God prepared beforehand. There's, a, there's one more, there's, there's many others, but there's one more I, I hadn't really thought of much, but um, another false road that seems right to a man uh, is ministry. There's a shocker. Gospel ministry. People, it's their, their job, so to speak, is to preach the gospel. Um, Matthew 7, uh, verses 15 through uh, 20, 23, it says the following. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right? You will recognize them by their fruits, by how they live. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. But then he goes on to say this, and I've often said I think this is the scariest passage in the entire Bible in some ways. He says, not everyone, Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it's a professing Christian, right? Most people don't call Jesus Lord, Lord, unless they're believers, or at least profess it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, here's that word many again, we read before in Matthew 5. On that day, many will say to me, there it is, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What were they depending upon to make them right with God? What did they think was their golden ticket into heaven? It's what they did. Did we not, Lord, Lord, but Lord, you know, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Certainly, they're, they're fine, right? And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. And what does he say? You workers of what? Lawlessness. So it's, it's not that much different for the person in the pew as, as it is for the person behind the pulpit in many cases. If, if our idea of the Christian religion is, as long as I do my religious thing, how I live doesn't matter, and I can live in sin all I want. What does Jesus say about that? It's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Paul, in fact, warns Timothy in the book that we're studying most Sunday, 2 Timothy. He warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, that, that of those who, quote, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate or heap up for themselves Teachers to suit their own passions or lusts. The more I think about that passage, the more shocked I am by it, although I shouldn't be. You would think that a professing believer uh, who just wants to live in sin would just not go to church. Would just avoid church like the plague, and in some ways that's true. But what does Paul tell Timothy? Oh, no, no. They won't, they won't tolerate the true teaching of the word, but they want teaching. They have to have the outward appearance of godliness, even if they deny its power. Having itching ears, they have an itch, they like a dog, but they want to scratch. 
they will accumulate or heap up for themselves teachers. And what kind of teachers will that be? Those who suit their own lusts. They'll go to a church, they'll listen to a pastor who lets them, by his teaching, alone in their sin. You want to, you want to fill a church? There's, there's the secret to church growth. Not the right kind of church growth, but Paul says they'll accumulate such teachers. It isn't that they don't want teaching, they just don't want teaching that calls them to repent of sin. They seek out teaching that purports to be from the Bible, but that which suits their own lusts and allows them to go on living in sin peacefully. And so Paul gives us a warning in, 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 in verse 9. He says, do not be deceived. In 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. And what does that imply except that we are very easily deceived? You know, it's easy for us to say, I, I, I admit that sometimes I think of this myself. You read that and you say, well, he means other people. He doesn't mean me. I, you know, you ever hear a sermon, maybe you're doing this right now, I hope not. You ever hear a sermon and you say to yourself, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this. I've done that a thousand times. In fact, when I prepare to preach sometimes, that's how I start, which is the wrong starting place. Oh, other people need to hear this. No, I need to hear this. Right? We all need to hear this. Um, you know, we are easily deceived and we often deceive, what does Paul say, ourselves. What does Jeremiah 17.9 have to say about that? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Paul does or Paul, not Paul, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't just say, hey, one of the many attributes of your heart is that there's some deceit in there. Every once in a while, your heart's going to trick you. He says it's deceitful above all things. What's the number one attribute of your heart outside of Christ, in some ways even inside of Christ? It's deceitful. Who is your heart deceitful to? You. Me. Your heart doesn't deceive other people. You do that, but your heart doesn't. Your heart deceives you. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The next verse is, I, the Lord, test the heart. God knows the heart, but we don't. You know, not only should that give us a little bit of pause in judging other people's motives, that's a very common thing for us, even as believers, to do. We think we know everybody's motives. Oh, this person did this because of this. We don't know our own hearts. How can you possibly know someone else's heart and motivation? So not only is the devil himself a deceiver and the father of lies, as John says in John 8:44, but in some ways we carry around within our chest, so to speak, a deceiver that is desperately sick, our own hearts. We have, wherever we go, we have a deceiver within us, and that's our heart. You know, people very often, well-meaning, well-intentioned, they'll say to you, you ever heard this before? Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. That's some of the worst advice in the history of humanity. If they've read Jeremiah 17.9, they would not say that. Follow your heart. How often is gross sin and immorality rationalized by saying things like this? Maybe you've heard someone, maybe you've said this, maybe you've heard someone say this. The heart wants what the heart wants. As if that makes it okay. <laughs> Certainly does not make it okay. How often is such sin rationalized in our day as just being authentic? I'm just being true to myself because my heart wants X, Y, or Z. And to fight against that would be to be a hypocrite. It's not what the Bible teaches. If your heart and even your conscience is not informed by 
transformed by and conformed to the word of God, then your heart and conscience are not trustworthy guides. And that is especially the case when it comes to the matter of the way to eternal life and peace with God. Don't follow your heart, follow the scripture, and have your heart transformed by the word of God along with your mind. At the very end of the book of Judges, we see a summary of, of mankind and sin and blind unbelief. Judges 21, 25, the last verse of the book, says this. It says, there was no king in Israel, and quote, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Was that a commendation? Was the book of Judges, was God saying, good job, guys, everybody did what's right in their own eyes? No, it's it's a negative, it's a condemnation, it is a criticism. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Why? It's self-deception, isn't it? They were all doing whatever seemed good or right to themselves. But were they doing what was right? No, in fact, one of the things, uh, you know, read the book of Judges sometime. I just told you it's 21 chapters long, so you might not get it done in one day. But read through Judges and note how many times you see something like this. I'm quoting from Judges 2, verse 11, but this kind of phrase is repeated again and again and again. In Judges it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges shows, it prepares you for the coming of King David, but Judges shows this downward spiral of sin, of idolatry, God sending judgments for their sin and unbelief, and then God raising up judges to show mercy upon them, delivering them from their enemies, And then the people going right back to their sin and idolatry and going down, down, down. Again and again it says the people did what was evil in God's sight. Think about those two things juxtaposed together. They did what was right in their own eyes, and in so doing, what were they doing? What was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the fact that it says in the sight of the Lord should be telling. In other words, that's, that's who's watching. As we read earlier in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere watching the evil and the good. They were doing what they thought was right to themselves, and it was evil in God's sight. We can so deceive ourselves that we can be doing evil in God's sight, while at the same time what we're actually doing is is right in our own eyes. That's a frightening thing to think about. In other words, if God were to pull us up short, you know, pull the clouds back and say, hey, what are you doing? They were saying, oh, we think we're doing just fine, thank you very much. But before God, it was evil in his sight. And there's a poem, it's a, one of the lines says, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And that goes even more so for deceiving ourselves. Well, last but not least, certainly, All those ways and more, there are more false ways than that. That's just a number of them that are common. They they seem right to many people, uh, but what does the writer of Proverbs say about their end? The end of those ways is the way to death or the ways of death. They seem right at first, but they lead to death in the end. What is the way to eternal life? If, if If the way that seems right to a man is that which leads to death, how do we know the way to life? Again, we already read it, but John 14, 6, Jesus tells us the good news. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He wasn't saying that in such a way as to bar people out. He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And you can come to the Father, but you have to come to the Father through me. That's good news. In fact, the context of John 14 
was all good news. Jesus himself is the way. He's the only way to the Father and the only way to eternal life. And so this morning I have to ask, and really you have to ask yourself this question, have you been following one of those false ways that seemed right to you at the time? One of those ways that leads to death. Is the Holy Spirit even now convicting you of sin and convincing you of the truth of the gospel of God? If so, repent of your sins. Repent of even seeking to find some other way to peace with God. Sometimes it's been said our repentance, so-called, is a thing that has to be repented of. Because our repentance was false. It was something involving some other way to God besides simple faith in Christ. All the shortcuts that the world and our own hearts promises to us to get us to eternal life are nothing but dead ends that lead to death. There are not multiple ways to God. Turn to Christ if you have not done so. Turn to Christ by faith and be saved. You know, Jesus Jesus trod the way that led to his death, that we might have life. Jesus walked the way of the cross, that by his death you and I might have eternal life in him. There's nothing else that will do, no amount of good works, no amount of religiosity, nothing else will give you true peace with God and the assurance of eternal life. You know, salvation by works is an awful thing. You can never do enough. You will never do enough good. You'll never give to enough charity. You'll never be religious enough to get yourself peace with God. And yet, what did Jesus and Jesus alone say uh, through, through the death of his death on the cross for our sins, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Everything else is a hamster wheel to hell. You just keep going and going and going, but Jesus says it's finished. And you can have eternal life and know you have eternal life by faith in him. Amen.